This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Hey, it's Sarah. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with the news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting NPR.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon. It's been a week, so let's get into it. Big decisions from the Supreme Court and Bidenomics is finally being embraced by Joe Biden. Meanwhile, his predecessor says this was nothing more than bravado. Now, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm-hmm. Except it is like highly confidential yeah. <laughs> secret. This is secret information. Look, look at this. We'll consider how this latest leak might affect the mounting legal woes faced by former President Donald Trump. Our guests this week are NPR's senior editor, Ron Elving. Idris Kaloon is also with us. He's the Washington bureau chief for The Economist. And Megan Scully covers Congress for Bloomberg News. Thank you all for joining us for such a busy roundup. So let's start with the Supreme Court. First, the big one. On Thursday, the court struck down affirmative action programs at the University of North Carolina and at Harvard. Not really a surprise given the makeup of the court, but the decision is a major victory for conservative activists. It puts an end to the systemic consideration of race in the admissions process. The court ruled that both programs violate the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution and are therefore unlawful. Ron, what exactly did the majority say in their opinion? The opinion is written by Chief Justice John Roberts, and in a real sense, it continues the same reasoning that we heard from him when he was in the process of gutting enforcement of the Voting Rights Act a few years ago, I believe it was 2013, when uh, in the Shelby County decision, he said, if you're going to stop racial discrimination, you must stop discriminating by race. You must stop making distinctions based on race. You can't make race a forward consideration. You can't have a box to check. You can't say that it matters what race somebody is, even if you're doing it for the purpose of protecting the rights of people of a particular race, even if you're doing it to correct for past discrimination, as in the Voting Rights Act, even if you're doing it to correct for past discrimination in higher education. Even if that's your purpose, and if that's a good purpose, if you want to end discrimination, and of course Judge Roberts was not just talking about something desirable, but something he said the Constitution requires under the 14th Amendment, you must do it in a race-neutral, race-blind manner. So that means no more affirmative action. Yeah, and Ron, can you say more about that? I mean, what is the likely impact, both right away and into the future? It's probably not going to affect every college the same way, and many colleges have already been trying to put in place alternative ways to increase the representation of previously underrepresented groups by various means. For example, in California, uh, there has been since 1998 an effort underway to not use affirmative action at all, but to attract a more diverse student body without it. And of course, that has had well, maybe mixed success is the best way to put it. 
it's been very difficult and very expensive. But there is the possibility that individual students and individual colleges will find some way to still address the question of diversity. But what's going to be lost in the short run is the automatic, if you will, the, the structural inclusion that affirmative action has brought. And that's not just a benefit for the people who are admitted. It's also a benefit for the universities, which have adopted the idea of diversity as very much a core value, a core value of education and certainly education at those schools. So that will be lost. Now, President Biden spoke to reporters Thursday soon after the news broke. He said, quote, I strongly, strongly disagree with the court's decision. Because the truth is, we all know it, discrimination still exists in America. Discrimination still exists in America. Discrimination still exists in America. Today's decision does not change that. And as Biden walked away from the podium, a reporter asked him, is this a rogue court? The president stopped in his tracks and paused for a moment before saying, this is not a normal court. Megan, in that statement, he added, this cannot be the last word. But but is it? I mean, what, if anything, can he do about this? So he's considering some executive actions to maintain diversities in at colleges and universities. Um, that, of course, could take time, and it could also be challenged in court itself. Um, and you know, when he talks about this is not a normal court, he's talking specifically about um, the six to three breakdown between conservatives and liberals on the court. And three of those conservatives um, were appointed by his predecessor, Donald Trump. Um, he, you know. Conversely, Republicans lauded the the decision. Um, Trump, not surprisingly, called it a great day for America. Um, and other presidential candidates um, for 2024 um, similarly uh, uh, applauded the Supreme Court action. Mike Pence, who was the former vice president, um, actually even took credit for, for some of the conservatives um, who were on the court uh, since he was serving as Uh, Trump's number two. Yeah, I want to hear from former uh, Vice President Mike Pence, uh, who's also a presidential hopeful, of course. Here he is speaking to NBC News on Thursday. There may have been a time 50 years ago when we needed to affirmatively take steps uh, to correct long-term racial bias in institutions of higher education. But I I can tell you, as the uh, father of three college graduates, those days are long over. Idris, you know, just zoom out for a moment, if you would. This decision covers the role of affirmative action in college admissions. But what about its ripple effects beyond simply elite universities? What impact might it have beyond higher education? Well, uh, affirmative action is already understood to not be allowed in the private sector because of the Civil Rights Act. Um, You know, there's some discussion about what effect this might have on corporations, but it will probably be muted. Uh, There are, uh, although, some executive orders that require federal contractors to employ programs of affirmative action, which weren't uh, directly addressed in this case, but are probably going to be challenged as well. But uh, definitely the big changes are going to be 
with higher education, particularly the cadre of elite uh, hyper-selective schools that seem to take up so much uh, conversation. Um, and in particular, I think we'll see a, a change in the way that education works and that uh, there might be a change in the take-up rates for standardized tests. Um, at the moment, a lot of these elite schools are uh, basically uh, eliminating, in some cases, consideration or not requiring consideration of standardized tests. I think that uh, there might be a period of resistance and a retreat into kind of a opacity and subjectivity as a way to make uh, these decisions in a way to preserve the original uh, kind of formulations of these classes and to avoid further court scrutiny. So I imagine you'll see changes in the way the high schoolers are are preparing, and you've already seen hints to that effect um, in some of, the, some of the statements that have been issued by colleges like Harvard. Ron, as you mentioned earlier, states like California provide a template for what might come next. They banned race-based admissions more than two decades ago, and you said they've tried to find other ways to diversify higher education. What has been the impact since then? They have spent a half a billion dollars over that 25 years since the California voters passed a referendum that banned the use of affirmative action and uh, in this particular respect. And they have managed to begin to pull their numbers back up. But at the two most uh, selective of the UC campuses, Berkeley and UCLA, the enrollment of uh, Hispanic and African-American students dropped by 40% after they banned affirmative action in 1998. So it's a long climb back from a 40% drop. And they're still finding that uh, if you don't use any kind of affirmative action, it's very difficult to reach numbers that are representative of the high school graduating population of the state. So we're not talking about necessarily all the people in the state when we're measuring proportionality. We're talking about the people who are coming out of high school. And in California right now, half the people coming out of high school are Hispanic. And they are nowhere near that kind of representation in the universities, and particularly not at the most selective of the University of California campuses, Berkeley and UCLA. I want to mention another decision from the Supreme Court. The court has ruled that Christian business owners can refuse to create same-sex marriage websites. Justice Sotomayor, in her dissent, said, quote, Today, the court, for the first time in its history, grants a business open to the public a constitutional right to refuse to serve members of a protected class. We will talk more about that in just a moment after this quick break. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from Wired. On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts. Let's continue our discussion of the Supreme Court. 
Another significant decision came down from the court on Tuesday. The independent state legislature theory holds that the Constitution creates a uniquely independent role for state legislatures to regulate federal elections. The Supreme Court disagreed. But I want to go back to that uh, new decision out today from the Supreme Court. The court has ruled that the Christian business owners can refuse to create a same-sex marriage website. Um, Ron, I want to go to you. What do you see as the significance of this decision? It's not the only religious liberty one, uh, this this term. Um, what do you make of it? This is a clash between the free speech rights of someone who designs websites and the rights to non-discriminatory participation in the economy by people who are getting married. And they would like to have a website. And just as some people a few years ago uh, wanted to have a wedding cake, and they wanted that wedding cake to come from a person who was well-known for making the best wedding cakes, that person said, I won't make one for a gay marriage. And this person in Colorado had said, I'm not going to do a website for a gay wedding. And that uh, is a clash between the rights of the couple to have the services of a business that is open to the public, just like anyone else, and the right of the person who offers that service to, well, refuse that service to people on the basis of what they see as a violation of their religious principles. Now, she has made the point, this is the website designer, that she has designed websites for gay and lesbian people who want to do other things besides get married. But she does not want to do a gay marriage because that violates her religious principles. This is a clash we're going to see again and again and again, because the concept of religious liberty is deeply embedded in the Constitution and the First Amendment. And since the Civil Rights Act, it has been clear that if you offer a service to the public, you must offer it to people regardless of their race, creed, color, etc., including sexual orientation under the laws of more recent years since the Civil Rights Act, and that is exactly where the point of contact and conflict has come, between religious liberty to say no and the rights that people have to equal treatment when they go into the economy to buy goods or services. Idris, where do you see this, this conflict, this debate going next? Um, well, I think you're going to continue to see the Supreme Court being deferential to the concept of religious liberty. We saw we saw that with the Colorado case uh, just a few uh, just now. We saw that with the uh, wedding cake case. Uh, we've seen also the Supreme Court has been willing to carve out you know requirements in the healthcare space for uh, birth control and these sorts of things. So I imagine you will continue to see a, a policy of, of deference. Uh, to to religious liberties, like Ron was saying, there is a conflict of rights here: the First Amendment rights of of one to practice their own religion versus the First Amendment rights of of people uh, to participate in society. Those that are guaranteed by the Civil Rights Act, um, and it's a tough tangle of issues to sort through. And it's one that I think the Supreme Court is going to side on one side of for uh, the foreseeable future. And we should mention the court came down six to three, as they often do on these kinds of decisions. A bit more from Justice Sotomayor's dissent, quote, around the country, there has been a backlash to the movement for liberty and equality for gender and sexual minorities. New forms of inclusion have been met with reactionary exclusion. This is heartbreaking. Sadly, it is also familiar. When the civil rights and women's rights movements sought equality in public life, some public establishments refused. Some even claimed, based on sincere religious beliefs, constitutional rights to discriminate. The brave justices who once sat on this court decisively rejected those claims. Turning now to politics, CNN and The New York Times revealed audio of former President Donald Trump discussing the classified documents at the center of his indictment. 
Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look. That audio is from a conversation that took place July 20 and 21 between the former president and a writer and publisher working with his chief of staff, Mark Meadows. On Tuesday, Trump insisted he was not showing off classified documents in this exchange. Ron, what do we know about what is happening in this audio recording? We don't know exactly what's going on, but the president at the time, well, the former president at the time, was showing off some of his papers on his desk to some people who were visiting him at uh, his Bedminster Golf Club and uh, telling them about some various plans he had for this and plans he had for that, and also talking apparently about uh, Mark Milley, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and a discussion he had, had with Milley about an attack plan on the nation of Iran. Now, it's not clear at what level of this plan existed, uh, how formal it was, or uh, if it was, well, certainly it was a classified document and certainly was top secret as the president himself, uh, former President Trump, was saying to these guests. Uh, he now says he was just trying to impress people by talking about this stuff, but it wasn't really as he represented it, as his voice describes it in the tape, uh, it wasn't really that. He was just, it was just bravado. He was just showing off to impress these people who were apparently making some sort of a documentary film. Uh, one can take that with what, however many grains of salt one finds it necessary to take it with. But uh, that is a little different difference from what he's been using in the Mar-a-Lago documents case Heretofore, he has been saying that he had the power to declassify things himself, that he could do it while he was in office, that he could do it afterwards, that he could just do it by thinking about it. Uh, he has said a lot of different things about these documents. And so this latest, oh gosh, I was just kidding, I was just showing off defense, uh, seems, well, reduced. Uh, and, and it has been commented by many legal experts to be not only a weak defense, but actually a rather incriminating thing for him to have said. So we shall see where these various tapes and uh, pieces of evidence that uh, Jack Smith and his prosecutors have with regard to Mar-a-Lago are going to take us and whether or not we will hear them in court, whether or not a jury will hear them in court, and when and if it does go to court. Yeah, but again, I mean, uh, on that note, how incriminating might this be and how much does it contradict what Trump has said in the past? Sure. Well, it, it gets to the point of you know, he he himself in the tape talks about how the, the it is highly confidential, um, classified information that he's in. You can hear the pages actually shuffling around. Um, and he also talks about how he could have declassified the information, but he's not president anymore. So he can't do that any longer, which gets to one of his the many defenses that that Ron noted that he has been using um, as this case has been discussed in, in public and, and certainly since the indictment on federal charges. But it's important to remember that the classified documents case is being is being heard in Florida. Um, and the judge, Eileen Cannon, who is um, overseeing the case, is uh, is has is a judge that is appointed that was appointed by the former president when he was president. Um, the jury pool is also much more favorable to Trump um, in Florida than it would be if the case were being tried in, say, New York or Washington, D.C. Um, so we'll see how this how this all kind of plays out here um, and whether or not it 
it, it plays out before the 2024 elections. You know, Idris, obviously Trump is facing trial for keeping classified documents at his estate. How might this affect the trial? Well, it, it does undercut uh, some of the defense that, that he might have offered. And, uh, you know, that'll that'll make the trial, I think, harder for him to, to argue. I think that if you look at the indictment that Jack Smith put out, um, it's really a study in contrast with the one that Alvin Bragg put out in New York a few weeks before. Um, it's highly specific. In certain parts, it was damning. Uh, there are pictures of boxes of these documents strewn about in bathrooms and on display in ballrooms. Um, and the fact that one of the, the key defenses that he'd been touted uh, is undercut by his very own voice, I think, just makes that case harder to uh, to sustain. Now, I think that when it comes to the political implications, it's unlikely that this trial is going to conclude before the Republican primary or even the November election in 2024 is over. Um, and in the interim, I think that what we've seen is that these indictments have only strengthened Donald Trump's position within the Republican primary. Um, and so that will, that will add a, just an unprecedented dimension uh, to this trial. Trump is already the first president who has appeared in federal court before a judge that he has appointed. That hasn't happened before ever. Uh, and he will now be the first uh, person running for president for the presidency, really, to uh, for his own uh, innocence. Um, you know, if he becomes president, obviously that turns the whole thing upside down. Uh, but I think that that ultimately means that uh, no matter the latest developments, it's going to be a topsy-turvy ride from here on out. So meanwhile, President Biden is focused on a strategy of his own. On Wednesday, he touted his economic approach to a crowd in Chicago. Bidenomics is working. When I took office, the pandemic was raging and our economy was reeling. Today, the U.S. has the highest economic growth rate leading the world economies since the pandemic. Ron, what is Bidenomics and is it a compliment? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it hasn't been invented as one. It's a little bit like Obamacare. Right. Uh, when Obamacare was first used, it was a slur. It was a, it was a way to sneer at the Affordable Care Act, which was its formal name. And later on, President Obama said, look, when this really starts to work, I won't call it Obamacare. But pretty much by then, everyone was calling it Obamacare. And in this instance, Joe Biden has sort of shortened that process and said, fine, I think it's working, so I'm going to embrace calling it Bidenomics. I was initially said as a kind of uh, denigrating term, as if to say, well, you know, inflation is really high and we look like we're going into a recession and a lot of people feel like we're still in the, the COVID dome and therefore the economy is lousy and we're going to pin it on Biden. Well, here we are, making our way through the uh, second, third year of the Biden administration. Uh, Just this morning, we got news that the inflation number is the lowest that it's been month to month in two years. It's down under 4% overall. Uh, The core inflation rate is a little more elevated, uh, but it's also coming down from where it was. Uh, We also have economic readjustment of estimates to show that the first quarter, second quarter, uh, we're looking a little stronger for the economy than it had been. And uh, and the job market is still quite healthy. There is some elevation of um, first-time filings for unemployment benefits, but overall, the unemployment number is astonishingly high, really, considering where we've been over the last some years. So uh, this this is a story that 
properly told, and if all goes well in the remainder of this year, uh, could be a plus for Joe Biden, not a burden for his re-election campaign. So that's why they're suddenly embracing it. What is Bidenomics? It's, it's simply the, the, the programs, the laws that were passed in the first two years of his administration uh, that spent a lot of money on infrastructure, that, uh, that carried forward some of the momentum of federal fiscal stimulus from the COVID period, mm-hmm. and that uh, to some degree you know, ad- adjusted some of the other elements of how the federal government interacts with the economy. So when it comes to the term Bidenomics, it's kind of the old, if you can't beat them, join them strategy, at least rhetorically. You know, Idris, as Ron just said, there is some positive economic news here, some challenges still. I mean, how do you think this strategy is working for Biden so far? Yeah, I, th- I think that Bidenomics is a mix. It's a, it's very different from what Obama did, right? It's a break from uh, the idea that the government ought to let markets function as they are. It's a, an embrace of industrial policy, which is very different. It's an embrace of protectionism, which is very different from what Obama had as well. Um, so I think the, the challenge is that uh, although Biden wants to take credit for the growth of the economy, one thing he didn't mention was uh, wages, and that's because of inflation. So real wages are down about 3% since he was uh, inaugurated. Um, That's going to be a problem for him as he tries to embrace and tries to own the economy in the election ahead. And I guess the other problem, Ron alluded to the fact that um, core inflation remained high. The Federal Reserve is looking at core inflation when it makes its decisions on rate increases and whether or not and how much further it has to go to tamp down inflation. And so that suggests that the Federal Reserve is going to increase rates. It's going to try to slow down the economy. And that increases the chances that the American economy hits a recession um, in 2024, which would obviously be a problem for the president as well. Um, So there's a lot for him to to take credit for with the Inflation Reduction Act and the Climate Subsidies and the CHIPS Act. Uh, But tying himself so closely to the economy means that he's also going to have to own what comes after. Particularly in an election year. We are talking with The Economist Idris Kaloon, Ron Elving from NPR, and Megan Scully from Bloomberg News. Former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney has some strong words about the state of U.S. politics. What we've done in our politics is create a situation where we're electing idiots. That was Wyoming's Liz Cheney speaking at a New York City event on Monday. Megan Cheney lost her primary last year. She's been one of the GOP's most outspoken critics of Donald Trump. She hasn't confirmed any plans to run or not run in the 2024 presidential election. How likely is it, do you think, that she might run? Well, she has said that she plans to decide in the next several months, um, but that stopping Donald Trump, whatever it takes, she said, is her top priority. The field of of Republican presidential candidates is, is getting larger by the day. Um, and, and if she were to join, she would be jumping in um, in, in the camp, this, this, this somewhat smaller subset of the, the, full, um, the full car of, of candidates, but the, the camp that is, is vociferously anti-Trump. So she would be trying to, to find a lane um, with the Chris Christie's and the, the Will Hurds and the Asa Hutchinson's who have been the most um, aggressive in, um, in criticizing the former president, in highlighting his legal problems and, um, and, and what they consider to be corruption during um, his, his presidency in addition to January 6th. And she would really be able to take up that January 6th mantle in particular, given her position as co-chair of, of that long-running committee on the Hill um, and, and how she put herself sort of at the forefront in, in mm-hmm. this battle against the former president there. 
It's the News Roundup. We'll be back with more after this quick break. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Let's get back to the news roundup and turn to malaria. Locally transmitted malaria cases are back in the U.S. for the first time in 20 years. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention put out a health advisory this week about malaria cases in Texas and Florida. So, Idris, there have been malaria cases in the U.S. before, but they've normally been contracted through people who are traveling outside the country. What more do we know about why this could be happening right now? Yeah, that's right. So the CDC has said that it's found five patients who contracted malaria locally. Uh, Most of the people who do contract malaria in America generally get it abroad and bring it back with them. Um, And what might happen in that case is that mosquitoes in the area, maybe there are more of them now, uh, can can bite them and then transmit that malaria to other people. You know, malaria was eradicated decades ago in America, um, you know, and uh, the CDC at the moment says that despite these cases, uh, the risk of locally acquired malaria remains extremely low. Um, So I think, you know, we don't have to uh, yet uh, cower in fear, but it's certainly a a concerning, uh, concerning uh, turn. And it's another reminder that this is an insect dominated world and we just live in it. And we have another opinion coming in from the U.S. Supreme Court this hour. The court's conservative majority struck down Joe Biden's program to relieve some federal student loan debt. The three liberal justices dissented. Megan, um, I know you may just be hearing this news and absorbing it as well, but I wonder what, what reaction you might have initially. So the decision itself is is not a surprise. Um, certainly um, was expected given the makeup of the court. I think we're going to see... Uh, probably in the coming minutes and hours, uh, protesters descend upon the Supreme Court. There's a lot of pressure on the Biden administration from advocates for student loan relief for him to pursue some uh, to pr- for him to pursue some action here, um, including uh, tapping a 1965 law, the Higher Education Act, to really. Um, to try to continue to push his student loan relief program despite the Supreme Court's ruling. That, however, will be a very time-consuming endeavor should he choose to to embark on it, and, and it may not actually happen until after the 2024 election. You know, in the, in the previous segment, we talked about Bidenomics. Um, and, and while the economy may be, the numbers are good, a lot of the, the core parts of Bidenomics are in legislation, the, the effects of which um, the American voting public is not going to see until after the 2024 election. Student loan relief, on the other hand, was, was a more immediate response to that, um, a more immediate facet of, of his 
broader economic agenda. So with this decision, that that really does undercut it in a week that he's trying to sell this concept of Bidenomics. Idris, how do you see this decision playing into the, you know, the 2024 election debate, uh, particularly with, I think, you know, young voters are going to come to mind right away? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there'll be some disappointment. I think the core legal issue here is a fascinating one, which is that uh, you know Congress has created a, a student loan program, and it also included is, is one of the uh, uh, points that the Secretary of Education could modify uh, an existing loan. And does that allow this sort of broad-based cancellation that Joe Biden had proposed of $10,000 to $20,000 per person? Um, I, I think it's a pretty interesting question. Now, um, are young voters going to, um, you know, want to plumb the constitutional questions? I think no. I think they're going to be basing their opinions on the outcome. Uh, You know, young voters have historically been fairly disaffected, have had lower turnout rates. I imagine this isn't going to increase uh, that. But um, all in all, I think it's hard to make the exact jump from Supreme Court decisions in particular to electoral outcomes. And I think the lone exception to that will be the abortion case and Dobbs and, and the uh, and the continuing kind of changes that it's, it's creating to American politics. I think those is, that's one of the few cases that's actually going to change uh, people's voting behavior. And I don't think that the student loan one will ultimately, nor do I think the affirmative action one will either all that much. I want to go back now to climate change. We were talking about uh, the impact on insect-borne diseases. Another Im- effect of climate change is being felt literally in D.C. Um, and many other major cities with the wildfire smoke spreading across North America. And as that poor air quality hits the Midwest and eastern states, the South is dealing with its own environmental crisis. At least a dozen people have died in Texas over the last several weeks due to a heat dome. That is when pressure builds over an area and traps hot air inside. In Texas, triple-digit temperatures have put much of the state under a heat advisory. Those have also been activated in states like Louisiana, Arkansas, Alabama, Kansas, and Missouri. So very hot. You know, Ron, this comes in Texas in particular as a state law there has taken effect that takes away the authority of cities like Austin to mandate water breaks for construction workers who have to work outside in this in this weather. How is that being received? This is something called the Texas Regulatory Consistency Act. And I'm, 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 I'm sort of a student of, of uh, names that are given to legislation. Regulatory consistency is the principle involved here. And what it really means is that the state, which is dominated primarily by Hardcore conservatives at the, at the state uh, legislature and also Governor uh, Greg Abbott, a very well-known hardcore conservative. Uh, these people are primarily elected in the rural areas of Texas. And, of course, Texas is a vast, vast state. It also has some large cities. Uh, by and large, the urban areas and, and uh, metro areas of Texas voted for Joe Biden. The rest of the state voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump and also for Greg Abbott. And just this last week, Governor Abbott approved a wide-ranging law that says you can't have separate laws in Austin, say, fairly liberal city, or Dallas, relatively liberal city, or Harris County, which is Houston, uh, which are protecting workers in various ways, giving workers various benefits uh, that are not statewide. You can't make it nicer to work in Austin or in Dallas. So, for example, and this is obviously the salient example at this particular moment, uh, Austin had mandated water breaks 
for its workers in Dallas as well, requiring 10-minute breaks, not every hour, but every four hours for construction workers working outside so that they could hydrate and get a break. Uh, 10 minutes every four hours. And supporters of the law, of course, said it would uh, eliminate the cumbersomeness of having different ordinances depending on where you were in the state. It should be consistent statewide, hence the name the Texas Regulatory Consistency Act. You know, Megan, we are seeing so many of these effects of climate change, from the, the smoke that I mentioned um, to to heat and everything else. Is this getting the attention of members of Congress in a new way? Is there any forward momentum on some of these issues? Sure. So last year, when a Democrat still controlled both chambers of com- of Congress, they were able to push through historic investments in, in climate um, to the tune of some $369 billion. Uh, that's for long-term programs um, on alternate fuels and, and other things in, in, intended to, to, to at least slow the progression of climate change. Um, those those programs are are just getting off the ground and have faced some tough opposition from Republicans, frankly, who tried to defund them um, just earlier this year. Uh, they were able to Democrats were able to still prevail there, and, and the programs are going forward. But this has really become uh, yet another lightning rod we're seeing between the two parties. There was a recent fight, for instance, over gas stoves, um, just to show how um, you know how difficult that this has become, you know, with with Republicans really going after any attempts to 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 limit um, the sale or stop the sale of of gas stoves based on climate concerns. You also saw uh, during the recent negotiations over the debt ceiling and um, the, the high stakes efforts to avoid a default, which which the president and Speaker Kevin McCarthy were narrowly able to do. Um, but in that broader package, you saw a program, uh, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, that uh, that Senator Joe Manchin, who's a Democrat from West Virginia and, and key to to Democrats' chances of holding on to the Senate in, in the 24 election, um, and it was this language to ease permitting for, for natural gas lines, uh, something that has been fought against by environmentalists. Um, but it nonetheless went through with the president's support. So that just goes to show you how difficult these initiatives have become and how unlikely it is for major climate legislation to get through a divided Congress. Many thanks this week to all of our guests, Ron Elving, NPR's senior editor, correspondent, and so much more. Idris Kaloon, Washington bureau chief for The Economist, and Megan Scully, Congress team leader at Bloomberg News. Uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the world knows Alan Arkin as a great film actor, but wait, he's also a fantastic singer and composer. Here he is singing one of his most beloved ballads, Mr. Alan Arkin. Before we head to the international edition of the News Roundup, a remembrance. Thank you, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. It's great to be back on The Muppet Show. It's fantastic to be back on The Muppet Show, even if it is the first time I've been on The Muppet Show. But seriously, folks... Alan Arkin passed away Thursday at his home in California. Arkin began his decades-long career in 1963 on Broadway in the comedy Enter Laughing, which won a Tony Award. He left the stage for the silver screen in 1966 and was cast in another comedy, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. Best known for his various characters and accents, Arkin enjoyed a decades-long and steady career. 
To some younger viewers, he's probably best known as the cantankerous but doting grandfather in Little Miss Sunshine in 2006. Grandpa? What? I don't want to be a loser. You're not a loser. Where'd you get the idea you're a loser? Because Dad hates losers. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back up a minute. You know what a loser is? A real loser is somebody that's so afraid of not winning, they don't even try. Now, you're trying, right? Yeah. Well, then you're not a loser. We're going to have fun tomorrow, right? Yeah. We can tell them all to go to hell. Good night, sweetie. I love you. Other notable film credits for Arkin include Edward Scissorhands, Glengarry Glen Ross, and Argo. His last film credit was voicing Wild Knuckles in Minions, The Rise of Gru, in 2022. Alan Arkin was 89. Well, if you're walking your breakfast, if you're sitting your lunch, if you're rolling your dinner, then I've got a strong hunch. You're no muskrat or beaver, no tomato or pig. There's no need to question. We'll be back with the international edition of the News Roundup in just a moment. Stay with us. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR. We've got a lot of news to cover in the international edition of the News Roundup, so let's get into it. A putsch against Putin. The holy day of Eid al-Adha in the Muslim calendar is marked with violence in Khartoum. And the fountain of youth might be in South Korea. What? Well, lots to discuss this hour. My guest, Joyce Karam, is senior editor, senior news editor at All Monitor. Welcome back, Joyce. Hi, Sarah. Indira Lakshmanen, global enterprise editor at the Associated Press. Indira, thanks for being here. Thank you, Sarah. And Jack Dutch is national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Always good to have you with us, Jack. Hey, Sarah. Good to be here. So let's start in Russia. Over the weekend, the Wagner Group embarked on what its leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, called a march of justice. The private mercenary group has held an important role in Russia's war in Ukraine. But over the weekend, it advanced on Moscow, calling for the resignation of Russia's top military officials. The march ended before any confrontation between Wagner and Russian military forces. There were two important factors for our decision to turn around. The first is that we did not want to spill Russian blood. The second is that we were marching to show our protest. 
but not to overthrow the government of the country. That tape is from Deutsche Welle. We had a conversation about the Wagner Group and its relationship with the Russian government in March, and you can find that at the1a.org. Joyce, what is the significance of the Wagner Group doing something like this? Oh, this is uh, unprecedented, uh, Sarah. Uh, it's it's the first time that we really see Putin uh, facing threats to his own uh, authority. As you mentioned, they came uh, 124 miles out of um, out of Moscow. Uh, they didn't face any major opposition. They took control of military buildings and uh, control of the city of uh, Rostov while being welcomed uh, by uh, the locals. This is something that we haven't seen at all uh, uh, since uh, Putin uh, uh, took power uh, two decades uh, ago. So it's definitely uh, a big uh, challenge for uh, for uh, Wagner, for uh, Prigozhin. Uh, they wanted a different kind of arrangement uh, with with the government in, in Russia, whereby their forces are not uh, forced to go back to the uh, to the military. Uh, it seems from the deal that what that was struck twenty four hours later. Uh, that they got that arrangement, but there is so much that we still don't know. This definitely exposed cracks in the defense uh, structure of the Russian government. And what we saw from Putin, uh, you know, coming out on Saturday and describing uh, Prigozhin as a traitor and then backing down uh, the next day. And on Sunday, basically, uh, he struck a deal with him through Lukashenko in Belarus. That's very different. That's an image of Putin that we've never uh, seen before. Here is a guy who has always portrayed an image of strength, you know, whether uh, wh- whether he's riding a horse or fighting a grizzly bear. Uh, but this image of uh, the authoritarian uh, persona, uh, the one who has hold on power has been definitely shaken over the uh, last few days. Indira, what do you make of Russian President Vladimir Putin's reaction to all of this? Well, it's quite interesting because in a way it's quite muted in the sense that this is a dramatic, dramatic mutiny, unbelievably traitorous, right, Uh, treasonous, to try to march on um, the Kremlin and take out. His demands were that Defense Minister Sergei Shogu and General Valery Garasimov, who is the chief of Russia's general staff, um, and he's been critical of these men for many months, very publicly. Um, he wanted them out. And there is intelligence that was shared by U.S. officials that supposedly Prigozhin actually intended to kidnap these two men, to capture them while they were on a visit to the southern region that borders Ukraine. But supposedly the Federal Security Service, the FSB, found out about the plan two days before it was supposed to happen. That's according to Western intelligence officials. And therefore that caused Evgeny Prigozhin to sort of launch his march to to Moscow earlier than he had expected. I mean, this is considered to be part of the reason why um, it failed. But another reason may be that Prigozhin, 
who, by the way, is in himself a fascinating figure. This is a man who started out as a hot dog vendor, rose up to be a very successful caterer to the rich and famous and powerful, to oligarchs, to, um, to Putin himself. He's been referred to as Putin's chef. He himself became an oligarch and then eventually created and ran this mercenary private army that was working in concert with Russian military officials. And so over the last decade, Wagner Group has had activities, um, military activities and successes, by the way, in the Middle East and in Africa. So he's incredibly powerful. So this figure who's been a friend of Putin's, for him to have been so vocal in the last six months in particular about his criticism of Russia's conduct of the war in Ukraine, he obviously thinks he could do it better. And he has publicly taken credit for any successes that Russia has had in Ukraine and has blamed any failures that Russia has had in Ukraine on the Russian military. So the idea of of what he was trying to do, this rebellion, um, is dramatic. And you would expect that Putin would take someone like this, put them up on treason charges, perhaps even execute them. But instead, he allowed a deal to be made, um, brokered by um, President Lukashenko of Belarus, Um, a country that's considered a puppet of Russia next door to Russia. And President Lukashenko has bragged about how he was able to make this deal that Putin himself couldn't. He has claimed that Putin called him and said, called him by his first name, Alex, and said, Alex, you know, I'm calling Prigozhin. He won't answer the phone. Can you help? And then Lukashenko boasts that he called and that Prigozhin answered right away and that in a, you know, long conversation laced with profanity that he eventually managed to calm down um, Prigozhin and convince him to take down the rebellion and take um, refuge instead in Belarus, along with any troops who wanted to go with him. Yeah, you know, I I can't say that a former hot dog vendor playing a critical role in one of the most dramatic turns in this conflict was something I saw coming. Um, But it's been so, you know, strange and it felt so unexpected to watch all of this unfold in recent days. But Jack, on, on Tuesday, there was reporting that top Russian military officials knew about Prigozhin's plans. I mean, what has been their response to this reporting? Yeah, just a a side note, all of this talk of hot dogs is making me kind of hungry, I guess, because we're just (laughs) before the lunch hour. But you wouldn't want to be picking the the table you're sitting at, uh, the lunch table at the Russian Ministry of Defense this week. This is really, really awkward. American officials believe that Sergei Sorovkin, who actually was leading uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine up until a couple of months ago, knew about Wagner's plans to stage this rebellion. Uh, and again, this is not a, a member of the military rank and file that, that you might just see milling about the bureaucracy. Uh, Sorovkin really laid the foundation for the Russian approach that we're seeing on the battlefield now. These miles and miles of trenches and, and minefields, they were dug and, and laid during Sorovkin's tenure, and he still had a lot lot of influence in the Kremlin. Apparently, this may even go further than that. CNN's actually reporting Sorovkin was one of about 30 Russian senior officials and military officials who was actually on Wagner's VIP list. It's not really clear what that means, but it's obviously a, a high-level designation within the group. And it tells you that this beef that Prigozhin had uh, with top brass in the Russian Ministry of Defense, that includes Valer- Valery Jeremasov, uh, who's now leading 
uh, that uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, as well as the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, this isn't just some petty back parlor dealing or some palace intrigue. This is serious beef that, that really cuts the heart of Russian politics. You keep using the word beef and we keep thinking about hot dogs. This is a very serious matter. Following the mutiny, the Kremlin is claiming that President Putin has, quote, astounding support from Russian citizens. That was the scene in Derbent, Russia's southernmost city, where Putin was welcomed by droves of cheering supporters Wednesday morning. Briefly, Joyce, the Kremlin is claiming the mutiny hasn't weakened Putin's role. And if that's the case, what can we expect to happen to Wagner leader Prigozhin? Uh, no, sure. I mean, Putin is trying to change the optics. His address was mostly for the cameras, the image of the strongman, uh, changing the subject. Uh, we're seeing uh, we're seeing interesting uh, dynamic take place in both Syria and Libya against Wagner. There was a drone attack today, and then there were reports of Russian raids against Wagner. Uh, as far as Prigozhin himself. To be honest, we don't know where he is. Lukashenko said uh, he is in Belarus, but then again, Lukashenko says so many different things. Some are true, some are false. This is still unfolding, and uh, we haven't heard the end of it yet. And just a note, former U.S. Vice President Mike Pence made a surprise visit to Ukraine to meet with President Volodymyr Zelensky. Pence told NBC News that visiting Ukraine, quote, steals my resolve to do my part to continue to call for strong American support for our Ukrainian friends and allies. Pence, of course, is in the Republican field of presidential candidates for 2024, challenging his former boss, Donald Trump. Also this week, Zelensky met with Swedish environmental activist Greta Thunberg. From Chicago and Detroit to Lisbon and Madrid, Canada's record-setting wildfire season continues to fill the skies with dangerous, hazy smoke. The smoke has led to the largest annual estimated emissions of carbon dioxide in more than two decades. That's according to the Copernicus Atmosphere Monitoring Service. Not fun when you're getting over a cold. Can I just say that? Indira, how are the high levels of smoke affecting health conditions in major U.S. cities across both the U.S. and Western Europe? Yeah, really badly, Sarah. I, I'm also getting over a cold and suffering from the same wildfire, but it's much worse than rather than for us in Washington, D.C., where, yes, the, the smoky air is bad. It's much worse, as you said, in Detroit and Chicago and in the Midwest in, in Minneapolis. Um, my AP colleagues in Detroit did an excellent story showing how um, essentially this smoky air coming from Canada is really exacerbating health risks for people people in the Midwest who are already suffering from industrial pollution. And it's particularly hard on poor and minority communities who live near polluting plants and have higher rates of asthma. So just one example, Detroit, which is a mostly black city and has a poverty rate of 30 percent, had some of the worst air quality in the whole U.S. On Wednesday, people were told to just stay inside. Um, Chicago, Indianapolis, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, um, St. Louis, Louisville, all had this really, really high um, bad air particles. And this is basically from almost 500 active wildfires um, 
more than half of which are out of control across 9.8 million acres across Canadian forests. That's 10 times the number last year. And, you know, this is one of the worst wildfire seasons that Canada has seen in decades. And the smoke is wafting not only throughout the American Midwest and down to the mid-Atlantic where we are, but it's crossing all the way across the Atlantic Ocean into Western Europe. And no surprise hearing all of that, this is the worst Canadian wildfire season on record since at least 1983. It's not expected that the fires will be fully extinguished until after the summer is over. Jack, how much longer can residents of major North American cities expect this poor air quality to continue? For a while, Sarah, I mean, you, you said it. This is the, the worst wildfire season in modern Canadian history and in recent memory, and it's burned up about 18 million acres. Uh, I mean, just to put that in perspective, in, in raw acreage, that's about nine New York cities in, in Boreal Forests and Quebec and, and other places burned to the ground. And, and it's only ramping up. While there's a chance for some rainfall in, in Quebec and Ontario, out west, it, it's only going to get worse. Uh, and Indira said it well, uh, the summer breezes that usually make for a nice picnic refresher uh, out here in Washington, D.C., in Rock Creek Park, they're going to be carrying a lot of that smoke back our way. I want to turn now to Honduras. Last week, a deadly riot erupted in the country's only women's prison. At least 41 inmates were killed. The Honduran government blamed feuding gangs for the horrific violence inside that prison. And this week announced a crackdown inside prisons. It shared photos of male shirtless inmates packed closely together during a contraband search. Joyce, why are human rights organizations and advocates so troubled uh, by these images? Uh, well, it is it is troubling the Honduras response to the horrific massacre that happened in the Tamara uh, uh, prison has been to take drastic measures similar to what we've seen in El Salvador by, uh, you know, tying these inmates outside uh, the prison, but without dealing with the root cause uh, of this, without addressing the, uh, the overcrowded uh, uh, prisons in Honduras, uh, the security questions that are outside of uh, those prisons, the infiltration uh, infiltration of gangs just in the uh, episode that, that we've seen. Uh, I mean, this is an opposing gang that that uh, smuggled uh, machetes, guns, uh, flammable uh, liquid, and uh, the 41 uh, women that you mentioned, some were burned to death, others shot, other. Uh, Stabbed, and this is not not entirely new for Honduras. In uh, in 2012, we've seen over 350 uh, prisoners killed in a massive fire uh, in an overcrowded uh, prison. So uh, the problem is just seeing an uptick now. Uh, President President uh, Castro is borrowing uh, from uh, a Salvador uh, example by uh, going in with a heavy uh, crackdown, security measures, curfew. But it is unclear if this is actually will uh, resolve uh, the problem with the with the uh, the source of, you know, why these people are joining the gangs, development uh, issues and all of that are still untackled uh, in, uh, in Honduras. We're speaking with Al Monitor's Joyce Karam, the AP's Indira Lakshmanan and foreign policy's Jack Datch. 
Let's move on now to Israel. For months, many Israelis have been protesting the conservative government's proposed judicial overhaul. Activists say independent courts are essential to the country's democracy. But this week, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu gave some indication on where he would budge on those court reforms. Jack, what sticking point of the judicial overhaul did Netanyahu decide to drop? Yeah, Sarah, Bibi had hit pause on on the judicial reforms in general in March after strikes really uh, racked Israel. And we even saw the Israeli embassy here in in D.C. and the embassies around the world shut down for for a day or two. Uh, Netanyahu just told The Wall Street Journal he's going to drop a part of the reform that would allow the Israeli Knesset to overturn judicial rulings in a straight vote. Uh, Those would be rulings that that the judicial branch, of course, considered unconstitutional. Netanyahu was in a tough spot here. He was basically trying to please those activists and opposition leaders who had organized the strikes and who had said that his government was eroding checks and balances. And and keep in mind, in historical terms, this is one of the most conservative governments in Israeli history. While his coalition partners who would champion those reforms, some of those ultra-Orthodox parties, uh, are saying he's not doing enough. Now, a lot of the reform is still intact. This is still potentially going to give, if it if it goes through, uh, the Israeli government and the Knesset more reform, more authority over judicial appointments. Uh, but essentially, he's made nobody happy. The activists are upset that they're they see Bibi as trying to pull the wool over their eyes, pull the wool over the eyes of the Biden administration and other international governments. Uh, and his coalition partners, again, say it's it's not enough. So he's still in this tough position. Uh, Bibi's had nine lives politically, of course, dating back to 1996, three prime ministerships. Maybe this is the ninth one. Indira, where does this sort of leave things with this court overhaul effort? And, and how much of a victory is it for Israeli activists who've been fighting these proposed changes? Yeah, that's a good question, because the truth is that dropping this override clause, although it was something that protesters on the street had focused on, it's definitely not a game changer for the people who are against this whole um, program, including NGOs and opposition politicians. Basically, they've said that um, they're particularly upset about um, the Judicial Selection Committee bill. And the people who are against this whole package have expressed concern that the coalition wants to change the composition and the rules of this panel and appoint political loyalist judges, i.e. judges who would be favorable to President Netanyahu, who, as listeners probably know, is facing a whole series of corruption charges. He's able to govern and be prime minister, even though he has a whole bunch of um, corruption charges against him. So uh, critics of this are worried that judges would always rule in the ruling coalition's favor and that that would preempt a need for overturning high court judgments. So there's still a lot of concern um, about this bill, even with this one particularly contentious element taken out. Meanwhile, Israel plans to construct more than 5,000 housing units for Israelis in the occupied West Bank. Here's U.S. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller talking to reporters on Monday. Uh, I can assure you that privately, um, we say this directly to Israeli officials, uh, that we believe that settlements are an impediment to a negotiated two-state solution along 1967 lines, which ultimately um, we believe is the best way to resolve the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Joyce, how is the language and rhetoric from the U.S. around the settlement issue shifting? 
mean, it seems it's just lip service because the Israeli government is proceeding uh, with these plans. They're brushing off uh, U.S. criticism. We've seen Assistant Secretary Barbara Leaf travel to Israel and the Palestinian territories and deliver these warnings in person. But still, the expansion is happening. The situation as a whole in the West Bank is very alarming. Uh, we've seen, Sarah, in the last week, over 300 uh, attacks against uh, Palestinians by settlers. We've seen uh, Palestinian uh, Palestinian militants shoot uh, uh, for uh, settlers in another uh, attack. Uh, just uh, this morning, there was an attack in uh, Nablus, another in Hebron. So this is a very fragile uh, situation. The U.S. Um, holds a lot of leverage and a lot of influence, but it's really not, uh, not, not using it. Instead, it's, uh, it's, it's opted for a more of a hands-off uh, approach, given what we've discussed in, uh, in Israel, all the problems with the judicial over, overhaul and Netanyahu's weak government, and given what it perceives on the Palestinian side as a divided uh, uh, house between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. But the situation on the ground is untenable, and it could uh, uh, force the ad- administration to weigh more uh, heavily uh, we've seen in the past uh, President Barack Obama, President George H. Bush, they've uh, they've gone with more pressure and penalties on Israel on issues related to uh, settlement expansion. Israeli President Isaac Herzog will address the U.S. Congress next month. However, Prime Minister Netanyahu has not received that same invitation. Jack, why might that be? Well, it's it's a compromise. Uh, to to really not deal with the political elephant in the room, right? Uh, Kevin McCarthy, of course, the Speaker of the House, was in Israel back in May. He said he would invite Bibi to Congress. Obviously, that's a step congressional Republicans have taken in the past, despite the the frosty relationship, of course, between Bibi and the Obama administration uh, a decade ago. That was a step that Speaker John Boehner took. So it's, it's kind of a way of setting up a compromise. Congress can say they're in favor of the military aid to Israel, Uh, They stand strong with Israel, uh, but they don't have to address the political elephant in the room. And you also have to keep in mind, of course, the White House invite hasn't come across uh, for BB2. So it seems like there's a little bit of agreement uh, on Capitol Hill and within the White House about how they're going to treat this situation. Now, Joyce, Netanyahu will not be staying home, though. He's making his own trip next month to China. What might come of that? Yeah, that will be a very interesting trip. I mean, here is Netanyahu who faces protests everywhere he goes. Germany, uh, uh, Poland, France. Now he uh, he chooses to uh, accept Xi Jinping uh, invitation and go to China uh, uh, next month. Uh, this is uh, a twofold uh, visit. One is, uh, of course, uh, China and Israel have uh, deepened ties now. Trade has doubled. Uh, more investments that we see in in uh, Chinese investments in Israel 
Israel, including at the Haifa port. Uh, so that's, uh, that's one, but two, and uh, more importantly, Netanyahu is trying to signal uh, Washington, to signal uh, the White House that, hey, if you're not going to invite me uh, anytime soon to the Oval Office, I have other options. Uh, for China particularly, this is another big moment uh, to play their diplomatic prestige. They just hosted Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, they've brokered the Saudi-Iran deal. So this is their way of saying, hey, we we could be uh, an option too for uh, Middle Eastern countries in this great power uh, rivalry with the U.S. Still, this is a risky gamble for Netanyahu, given and how dependent Israel is on the U.S., you know, $3 billion in aid uh, annually, and then what you have uh, with shared intelligence and defense cooperation on uh, on Iran nuclear program, neither of these issues uh, China can substitute. So uh, it'll be an interesting visit to watch and to see American uh, reactions to it. Staying with Israel news just a little bit longer here, British lawmakers hope to ban their government and officials from participating in the protest movement known as Boycott, Divest and Sanction, or BDS. Here is Amy Shalan, the the chair of the British Palestinian Committee, speaking Monday. It's a very dangerous moment, and not just for Palestinians, but for any kind of social justice or climate justice movement. This is essential that this law doesn't get through. Indira, what exactly would this proposal prohibit and how might this fight play out in Britain? Yeah, the bill had its first reading this week, um, so it's not there yet. It's not been passed. A second reading is slated for July. It's the brainchild of conservative uh, Tory politician Michael Gove, who's a secretary of state in the in the cabinet. And this dates back to 2019. It was part of the Conservative Party manifesto. And so what he's trying to do is prevent Britain's local councils and universities from, quote unquote, adopting their own foreign policy by adopting BDS, boycotting Israel or companies that trade with it. What's interesting is that while um, an important umbrella group that represents the British Jewish community expressed appreciation for the government on this, the Union of Jewish Students and several other Jewish youth groups oppose it on the grounds that it violates civil rights. And they say that using legislation like this to clamp down on free speech harms democracy because it would make it illegal not just to boycott Israel, but to protest China, Myanmar. Um, And they basically said this is not going to make Jews safer. We have to remain committed Um, to the values of democracy, free speech, and human rights. So definitely a very controversial um, proposal out there that people have compared to Margaret Thatcher stopping local authorities from supporting the boycott of South Africa. Muslims around the world marked Eid al-Adha this week, one of the holiest days in the Islamic calendar. The final days of Hajj coincided with Eid, also known as the Festival of Sacrifice. But on the first day of Eid in Stockholm, Sweden, an Iraqi refugee who once the Muslim holy book, the Quran, banned, tore out pages from the book, wiped them on his shoe and set them on fire. That's according to Swedish public broadcaster SVT. He was given the go-ahead by a Swedish court, but police later charged the man with agitation against an ethnic or national group. So Joyce, 
who is this Iraqi refugee, uh, and why did the courts allow the book burning? Uh, yeah, it's really an unfortunate situation, Sarah. The book, the Quran burning uh, at the time when uh, Muslims are performing pilgrimage in, in, in Saudi Arabia, the optics, the message is just uh, terrible. Uh, from Sweden, the Salwan uh, Momika, he's a uh, Iraqi uh, refugee. He's known for his anti-Islam uh, uh, views, and he's wanted uh, to uh, to go ahead with this protest for uh, for some time. Uh, in February, the police had uh, banned him, but then. Uh, went to court and uh, in April uh, the court overruled uh, and and said he is they are allowed to protest that's in part because of how uh, Sweden's uh, freedom of expression uh, laws uh, work you can't preemptively uh, stop uh, a protest uh, and uh, uh, that's whether it's the anti-NATO or in the case of uh, Salwan with the uh, Quran burning. However, uh, now we're seeing the uh, the blowback, whether that's in you know Iraq where the Swedish embassy was stormed uh, across the Muslim uh, world. I mean, Morocco, Jordan, they uh, recalled uh, their ambassadors to Sweden. They summoned uh, Swedish uh, ambassadors in their uh, countries. Saudi Arabia condemned Iran, of course. So, uh, so uh, w- the, the backlash is is really uh, at large in the Muslim world. And Momika, as you mentioned, he's being now investigated on two counts: hate crimes and then setting uh, the, the the fire uh, outside uh, the Iraqi embassy. So, uh, all in all, this put uh, Sweden at a very critical juncture, a time when it's trying to uh, go in NATO. Uh, uh, president uh, Turkish President Erdogan lashed out uh, at Sweden, so uh, damage control is now happening from the Swedish government. They sent a letter today to the Iraqi government expressing regret, uh, but there is no guarantee that protests like this one won't happen again, uh, whether it's on a Muslim Eid or another day, and uh, you know, with all the offense that they've would uh, would bring to the Muslim world. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about Turkey, which you just mentioned. Um, this also sparked diplomatic anger from Turkey, which may have an effect on Sweden's move to join NATO. The Turkish foreign minister, Hakan Fidan, condemned the act in a tweet, adding that it was unacceptable to allow anti-Islam protests in the name of freedom of expression. But on Thursday, the NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, said this. I understand uh, the... Uh, emotion and the depth of uh, feeling uh, uh, this uh, causes and um, and actions uh, uh, taken that are uh, offensive and objectionable uh, are not necessarily illegal in a uh, sovereign uh, legal uh, system. Um, we have also seen um, uh, protests uh, against both Turkey and uh, NATO over the last uh, weeks in uh, Sweden. Um, I do not like them, uh, but I defend the right to disagree. This is part of freedom of expression. 
And Jack, you know, in late January, Turkey suspended talks with Sweden uh, over its NATO application after a Danish far-right politician burned a copy of the Quran near the Turkish embassy in Stockholm. Can we expect to see fallout uh, on Sweden's NATO membership based on all of this? It's not looking good, Sarah. And I think what Joyce mentioned, the comments from Erdogan and, and Hakan Fidan are not exactly the words of someone you'd expect to be letting you into a treaty alliance very soon. Uh, The optics make this bad because it's during Eid, of course, uh, and, of course, the timing makes it makes it really difficult. Erdogan's re-election bid seemed like the, the green light for Sweden to finally get into NATO. Um, but NATO officials were really hoping that the timing would be right now. We're 11 days away from the Vilnius summit, NATO's annual gathering in Lithuania. That's when they're hoping to get Sweden into the alliance. And it's very time-sensitive because, keep in mind, If Sweden doesn't get into NATO now, it will totally knock the alliance off cycle. They'd have to rewrite their entire defense plans with Sweden on the outside looking in, Sweden outside of the nuclear group, Sweden outside of of the defense plans with those submarines that they would bring to the Baltic Sea uh, without those F-35s. This would be a huge blow to the alliance. In Sudan, residents in the capital Khartoum report heavy gunfire in parts of the capital, despite both sides announcing truces for Eid. Indira, where do peace negotiations stand right now between the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, and the Sudanese army? Yeah, not in a good place. Um, As you said, there recently was a 72-hour ceasefire, um, but there was also recently an airstrike in Sudan's capital, Khartoum, that killed at least 17 people, including five children. Um, And, you know, this was one of the deadliest clashes that we've seen in Khartoum or elsewhere in Sudan, for that matter, between the military and this powerful paramilitary group you mentioned known as Rapid Support Forces. To give a little bit of background, um, this all this current conflict, um, you know, started up in April, um, but it has a longer history, which is back in 2019, there was a nonviolent popular uprising that where Sudanese took to the streets in hundreds of thousands and demanded political change. And uh, they were against the then longtime dictator Omar al-Bashir. Um, but then that same year, in April of 2019, there was a palace coup that deposed Bashir, and it was orchestrated by two of his generals. Um, and those two generals were through a series of peacemaking deals. They were allowed to stay in power, Abdel Fattah Burhan and Mohammed Hamedi Hamdan Dagalo. Both of them had learned under Bashir. They were both brutal leaders. And when they fell out with each other, the country sort of broke up into violence. So all these failed ceasefires have come and gone and have not actually solved the problem. And the concerns of the peaceful citizens, the, you know, nonviolent protesters of 2019 have not been taken into account. So here we are four years later And Sudan is in a really terrible situation. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia have been mediating between the warring parties almost back since April. Um, But all that mediation is, let's face it, is focusing on um, these top dogs, the military and this, um, this paramilitary group, the Rapid Support Forces, which, by the way, have been joined recently by the very brutal um, paramilitary group that I think listeners will 
will remember hearing about the Janjaweed, who were accused of so many human rights violations in Darfur. So it's a very ugly situation, and it's not one where the attempts at peacemaking seem to be working. Moving now to Europe, starting with France, unrest spread across the country this week after the fatal shooting by police of a 17-year-old of North African origin who evaded a traffic stop in a Paris suburb. Joyce, what can you tell us about these protests, and do we expect more of them in the coming days? Uh, well, it's been getting worse, uh, Sarah. We, as we know of now, more than hundred, uh, more than eight. 800 uh, people have been uh, arrested across uh, France. The protests have gone to uh, Marseille, Strasbourg, Paris, uh, and uh, uh, we're seeing riots, we're seeing cars being burned. The um, public transportation has just been uh, suspended uh, uh, this morning in, in, these, uh, in these cities. Uh, the UK issued a travel uh, uh, warning uh, for France. So this is an escalating uh, situation that started uh, on Tuesday when an Algerian French uh, French kid of Algerian uh, roots. His name is uh, uh, Nahel, uh, last name Nahel M. Uh, he's 17 years old. He was uh, he was shot at a uh, traffic uh, traffic light by uh, by uh, a policeman. Uh, this is uh, this is just carries a um, lot of um, uh, history in France. There is a sentiment that uh, there is. Uh, impunity when it comes to the police, that there is uh, no accountability in these shootings, that there is uh, deep discrimination against uh, teenagers and kids of uh, of Arab or uh, African uh, descent. Uh, you know, to com- this is very similar what we're seeing if we want to compare it to a George uh, Floyd uh, moment. Uh, the mom, uh, the mom of the of the victim, uh, he's her only son. She's just uh, she's asking for uh, for for the police who shot him to be to be held uh, uh, accountable. I mean, he gave his mom a goodbye kiss and uh, went uh, in his car was driving to McDonald's and and uh, got shot. So uh, answers have to be uh, given by the government. The the, the policeman uh, who who shot him has already been. Um, now put on uh, on trial uh, for manslaughter, uh, but but the overall sentiment, the, the deeper problems that are driving uh, this, I'm not sure we have answers to those yet. A 2017 study by Rights Defenders. Uh, found that uh, young men perceived to be of black or Arab descent in France are 20 times more likely to be stopped by uh, the police. So as the government is trying to grapple with riots, with with uh, uh, the cars burning in the streets, it also has uh, to do a lot of reflection on, uh, you know, police actions and this uh, lack uh, of impunity. Uh, French President Emmanuel Macron called the teenagers shooting, quote, inexplicable and inexcusable. And uh, as Joyce just alluded to, two police officers are now facing charges of voluntary homicide. 
Now, before we have to go, I want to move on to the neighboring UK. On Thursday, a British court ruled that the government's controversial plan to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda is unlawful. Indira, quickly, what exactly is that plan? Yeah, this is really interesting. Um, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was trying to take a page from Australia's book, which off uh, basically does offshore asylum processing. And uh, he has argued that there is a problem of people smuggling into Britain, and he wants to deter people from arriving across the English Channel in small boats. Um, so he said, we're going to send any illegal, any, and we're going to deport any asylum seekers to Rwanda. And Britain was paying Rwanda more than £120 million, pounds, $150 million um, in development funding, and would also pay for processing and integration costs for each relocated person. And the people who were granted asylum would have to live in Rwanda. They would not be allowed to return to Britain. What the court, the majority of the court argued is that the Rwanda is not a safe enough country, um, <clears throat> that, you know, that there is the possibility that people would be deported by Rwanda back to their home countries, that there is no safety for them there. The Rwandan government protested against this, said that that was a not a fair description of Rwanda. But the fact is, this is all part of the Tory party's, um, you know, Britain first Brexit policies, anti-immigrant policies, and, um, you know, trying to deter people from coming to Britain by saying you won't end up here, you'll end up in Rwanda. Before we go, a surprising series of headlines hit the major news outlets this week, most of them similar to something like South Koreans grow younger overnight. That's because a law standardizing the way the South Korean government counts age took effect this week. More than 51 million people in South Korea awoke on Wednesday to find themselves a year or two younger, at least on paper. Can I have that too? So much thanks to our panel this week. Joyce Karam is senior news editor at Al Monitor. Indira Lakshmanan is global enterprise editor at the Associated Press. Jack Dutch is national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Mike Kidd is 1A's sound designer and engineer with help this week from Adrian Danhauser. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. And Amaya Garg is our senior managing producer. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR, with special thanks today to WHRO in Norfolk. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon. This is 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com NPR and use code NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. 
once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.